Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman Perks and welcome to my favourite time of the week. And I'm very lucky to have an old friend of mine, Colonel David Hudson, and he works for TALIS. Um, but he and I go back a long way with uh, uh, General James Bashel. We all did P Company together. And uh, Dave and I became great friends and in the spare time we sort of partied and we worked hard while we were on doing the airborne training. And I learnt a lot from him. He's quite a role model to me and someone I've always admired. And then um, four tours of special forces, uh, which is really unusual and bloody hard for anybody, um, but he did it supremely well. I once was with the chief of the general staff listening to a personal briefing by Dave Hudson to the head of the army about an operation that he'd done, which I just thought, take your hat off to you, mate, exceptional. Uh, and then also the final tour he had before he went into business for the last seven and a half years was uh, the colonel at the Royal Military Academy of Santos working with the commandant to restructure pe the way th things were done, particularly getting people not to uh, what they think, but how to think, to think uh, in unusual situations, which all his special forces training had prepared him. So Dave, great to have you here. Thanks very um, much. Yeah. So, so uh, purpose, life purpose firstly, in, in a nutshell. What, what gives you a sense of purpose in life and all these things you've done and now you're working in TARS? I, th I think, um Putting work aside, life purpose is, is, is to enjoy life, enjoy yeah. the, the joy of life and to make sure you're happy. Yeah. That's that. <laughs> That's yeah. fantastic. Okay, so take us on to you know, your life in a nutshell. You packed a lot in. How would you give it a little Well, it's my leadership story. It, it started at uh, school. I was made uh, head of house and head of school. I never really understood why. I didn't have any leadership training, but did that. Um, after school, I went to Sandhurst, where I was taught uh, how to lead. Um, yeah. in terms of what the qualities and functions of a leader were, the qualities, uh, intelligence, initiative, mor um, moral courage and, and integrity, and the functions being planning, controlling, um, planning, briefing, controlling, supporting, informing, evaluating. And I still remember those. I'm impressed. I'm nearly impressed. 35 years later, uh, beyond all other leadership models I've ever been taught. Um, and from Sandhurst, I then went off and had 30 years with the Army, um, working a lot of time with highly motivated specialist teams, which was an absolute joy, made leadership actually very easy. Um, I, I was involved in most of the conflicts over, over that time, um, but also I find time to go and do some interesting things, train the close protection teams with the uh, King of Swaziland and the President of Botswana. That's cool. And also uh, counter narcotics teams uh, out in Colombia, which was uh, certainly exciting and a bit like, bit like narcos, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I finished my career at the Royal Military Academy, Academy Sandhurst. Um, as you mentioned, uh, we were asked to um, operationalize the training and, and modernize the learning. Um, and one of the things we did was to try and change the culture so that the, 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 the learning culture was mirroring the needs of the learner, not the institution. And as you said, the, the key point was teaching people how to, uh, how to think, not what to think. So you had someone who could think, decide, act and inspire people while they're under pressure, probably when they're scared in a complex, dangerous and changing environment. And that, uh, that just doesn't apply to the military. So after that, I, uh, I joined TALIS. Uh, I was asked to set up a business, which I did. 
Um, and um, I then joined a board and was responsible for the transformation of that board. A lot of it was about leadership in terms of leadership styles for people in the digital information age as opposed to the sort of industrial age. And I now work as a key account manager. Um, but the thing I really enjoy is uh, leadership mentoring of the young talent in Talis. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And, and what, a, what a hell of a story you've packed in already. And what about the people who inspired you? Uh, my father inspired me. He, was, he came from uh, poverty in Sheffield uh, and uh, got scholarships to go to medical school. That was interrupted by uh, the war. He fought in Burma oh, wow. um, uh, and he had a terrible time. Um, he, he came back. Uh, finished his studies and ended up on the team that invented the pacemaker. Wow. He, uh, he suffered with PTSD um, all of his life. He didn't really know it, but he did. Um, but what I admired about him was his, uh, his, his quiet determination. He achieved a lot. He had two successful careers. He was, um, he was modest. He, uh, he had moral courage. He would stand up for what he believed in. Um, and it was always apparent that his teams loved him. David Sterling inspired me, his ethos about uh, the pursuit of excellence. Um, um, Explain to the listeners who are not in the military who David Sterling was. David Sterling, he founded the SAS in, in the Second World War and he, he created this ethos which is I still live by today. It's the pursuit of excellence, the, um, and I think the Indian rugby team used this, it's always trying to improve, don't just think you've, you've made it. Uh, humility, don't blow your own trumpet. Classlessness, don't, uh, it doesn't matter about your background, it's what you bring to the team, it's what you mm. contribute. And last, which is really important when it all goes wrong, is to have a good sense of humour. Mm. Uh, and the third one is a, uh, a young lady who was a motorcycle tour, tour leader I, I met in India three years ago. She, she ran tours in the high Himalaya. Um, and I was impressed by her empathy. We were all people trying to realise our dream of an adventure in the high Himalaya. Um, and she led us through it. And she did it using empathy because we were in a very difficult environment with terrifying water crossings and we're at 18,000 feet. Uh, and her empathy made us put aside our egos and, and explain what our problems were. And she helped us to overcome those because she listened. And when we looked back at it at the end, she'd actually done a remarkable job of leading a load of leaders yeah. through this environment and done it with great humor and made it really enjoyable. Remarkable woman. I need to get her on this series. We need to you do really do. Yeah, yeah I really do. Um, and then we all talk about mistakes that we've made and blunders we've had, but what we've learned from them, because it's always this learning from mistakes. What, what, what would be your story? Yeah, I think that there's a couple of things. The first one is I remember um, I had a young soldier work for me and, and, and he was introduced to a senior officer during a visit and was asked a question and he froze. Um, and I went up to him afterwards and I asked him, you know, what was that about? You know, this, this, this guy had been selected as a, as a future leader and I was just really surprised. So I had this conversation with him. And what I didn't realise was that he, this, this conversation uh, shattered his self-belief and as a result he left the army. Wow. Um, and what I learnt about that, it's, it's not what you say, it's how you make people feel. And therefore emotional leadership and uh, uh, emotional uh, intelligence in leadership is really, really important. Yeah. yeah. Um, the second thing I learnt is, or, or I got wrong, was my transition from the army to, um, to the, the business world. I was used to people that uh, were paid and instructed to um, enormous condition to, to, to take orders um, and I had a rank and a uniform but when I left that that immediately became relevant and it was David Hudson leading teams so first thing I had to do is find out who David Hudson was um, and then I had to adapt not my qualities as a leader but certainly my my leadership style to more of a collaborative um, and empathetic uh, approach to make people actually want to work for you 
and that that was a that was something I learned. It took mm. a bit of time to learn that. Yeah. yeah, well, that's very honest of you to say that. Thank you. Uh, I resonate with that for so many of the leaders, really good leaders who who have done very well since, but they just the transition was such a shock. Yeah. And then, what would be your your sort of top tip or two that you'd give? Because you know, obviously, you've been at, yeah, um, I, I think, in the business of teaching people throughout your life. I think the thing about leadership is don't just see yourself as a leader; see yourself as a, a role model. People are watching you all the time, and they're going to learn from the things that you do. Uh, and be a mentor as well. I think mentoring is really powerful, um, helping people develop. And I think when you look back, you look at all the successes you might have had. I think I think your legacy becomes you know what you've done for other people. Mm. And my last tip is always say a genuine thank you, um, because not only does it make people feel appreciated, but I think it's really empowering for people. Yeah. So uh, those would be my two top tips. And great tips. And I think that the thing about thanking people doing it genuinely I think the three S's specific sincere and succinct what you appreciated about them yeah people people want to know that you, you genuinely care rather than just a done really well guys yeah but what does it mean no it's got to be personalized and you've got to know the person you're saying thank you to some people say they don't want to receive thanks um, but I think generally they do I they do yeah they do well Dave thank you oh, thanks very much um, for having me. because uh, you know you've got such a lot of wisdom to share which I'm looking forward to on the podcast we're gonna okay. have 30 minutes of more banter but thank you very much indeed and uh, okay. congratulations on a great career both uh, in the military and also in tennis thank you hello I'm Jonathan Bowman Perks and welcome back to inspiring leisure extra and delighted to have uh, Colonel David Hudson and he and I old chums talking as if we're at a bar having a chat about various things. Dave, um, what about life and all the different things you've done? I, I think, let's begin with Father. He'd stand like a remarkable man and quite a role model for you. He was a remarkable man. Um, he really inspired me. Um, he was brought up in Sheffield. Um, his father was a veteran from the First World War, he got injured, so he lost his specialised job and was a steel worker. Um, they had no money. And he... Um, he won scholarships and got himself into medical school, wow. um, which was a real sign of great determination. Yeah. And just as he got there, the war broke out and he ended up uh, going out to Burma uh, for um, the war in the jungle. Wow, was, that was, was with Field Marshal Slim? That was with Field Marshal Bill Slim. Yeah. Um, Did he ever come across him? Was uh, I don't know if he came across him, but he's always spoke very highly of both him and, and, uh, and Matt Batten. Yeah. Um, but he, it terrified him, um, and but it, the friendships both with the officers and with the soldiers um, endured for the rest of his life. Right. And I went to some of the reunions and met them, and they they, they just loved each other. Yeah. Um, they'd been through so much. Yeah. But he survived the war and, and came back and uh, went back to medical school. They had him back, um, and he he ended up he working on the team that uh, invented the, the pacemaker, wow. um, which which was quite quite a remarkable thing, um, and became a. Uh, a consultant in Wolverhampton for the rest of his time is, is very happy but uh, I admired his, um, his determination to get where he got he had two successful careers he had moral courage he always uh, stood up for what he believed in and if he thought something was wrong he, he, he would say so um, but I think because of all the all the horror that he saw in Burma um, and all the people he saw he told some terrible stories about was he at Kahima he wasn't at Kahima, but he was in the Arakan, in the Adman, oh, Adman yeah, Bost, and, yeah. uh, Box, and uh, all those battles were cross, just cross the, the Sitang Bend and the crossing of the Irrawaddy, where yeah. a young lieutenant he'd spent the night with before, just before the night of battle, they were chatting. He was killed the next day. 
and later in life, all of these stories came out, um, and it was quite apparent that he'd he'd had PTSD all, all his life, all his life, um, but didn't really recognise it. So, how did you see his PTSD come out in those as you were growing up? Um, I didn't recognise it when I was growing up, but when I was looking so, back, looking now. back, I didn't really recognise it. I just knew him as my father. But when I saw him later in life, I used to go and take him out. We'd go and have a pint and. Uh, just one night I remember, he was about to go to bed and we'd, 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 we'd had a, a whiskey nightcap and he just put his hand on my arm and said, um, it was terrifying. And I went, this is about to come out. And I felt very privileged that he chose me as a, his two sons. He was a doctor and a soldier. One of his sons was a doctor and I was the soldier. He shared that with me and it was, it was a mental relief for me uh, that towards the end of his life he, he could he could share that and get it off mm. his chest mm. but it's just such a shame that he you know the, the way things were then you you didn't talk about it so he carried it all the way through and it's it's quite tragic really yeah. but what it did do is it, it he really had a joy of life he, he loved people he loved traveling meeting people and um so it was quite emotional talking about it but he yeah uh, that's he really did inspire me well, well, Dave, you also have your own tough time to talk about. Do you want to just talk about that now? Yes, I mean, um, PTSD is, um, is real. Um, no one who gets it thinks they're going to get it. Um, I did 30 years in the army, which I thought was fantastic. You have a support network, you have your mates, you look after each other. Um, but it's only afterwards uh, when you leave um, uh, that, that things can go wrong. And they went wrong with me probably about two years after I left the army. Um, with anxiety and depression and and what I'd say is it can happen to anybody it doesn't matter what level of trauma you're uh, exposed to or what you experience you know it's it's personal to you and all I'd say is if is if you're not right go and speak to someone and get it sorted out because it really isn't something you can you can uh, deal with by yourself you need yeah. you need professional help so I yeah. recommend that to anybody that has that problem and I think when you do get it you suddenly realize how many other people have yeah. have got it as well and people well, open up to you and say yes I have this and we're all in it and uh, yeah. so that, that really surprised me but it, it is something which is uh, I think when you've had such a long period of time uh, with intense operations um, you know it, it, it is it is an unintended consequence and it's something that we talk about the um, the military covenant but I think it really is a responsibility of society to, to help people so. yeah. uh, to help people who, who are suffering well, no, and, and I do admire you for talking about it. And you know, I'm currently having some therapy myself because I'm suffering from anxiety yeah. and depression as well. And so I completely understand. And I'm not one to judge anybody. And I think it's healthy um, for us to start talking about it because yeah. if we're going to be role models, we have to go. Look, we're, we're not the complete article. We're the incomplete leader with the complete team, as someone once said. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and as incomplete leaders, we're constantly learning, but also. If we don't talk about it, it blows up. I found people completely going to meltdown if they don't address it. Yeah, and you've seen that. I mean, there's been so many in them from the armed forces, but not just the armed forces, police and fire and yeah. the like, who've had terrible experience in PTSD, and it's ruined their life, and they've ended up on the streets and in and in the poorer elements of society. I, th I think that's exactly right. I mean, I was very lucky. I had a supportive family. Uh, I had the resources to go and, uh, and, and and seek help myself, but a lot of people don't have that. And so people that do the charity work, one of the soldiers I used to work with, he goes into prison and he helps people um, who are ex-military, who've had real problems um, and have got PTSD and almost have been given up on by society. And mm. I think that that's just the most remarkable 
thing to do with your life to go in and help those people and how he does it is he's such a fantastic bloke but he goes in and listens and, yeah. and, and eventually gains their trust and he tries to help them it's, mm. uh, you know it's uh, well I was, it's a reality just earlier talking with Chris Moon who's going to be on the series shortly and Chris um, was working for the Halo Trust clearing minefields yeah, yeah. I think we were talking to you earlier and on a clear minefield route he was coming back down the cordons and there was one that they hadn't found for whatever reason it was a special kind of mine and he stood on it blew off his leg and blew off his arm um, and he's also been uh, taken as a prisoner of war by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia yeah. when he was clearing mines and both experiences would finish anybody off mm. um, but he goes and he's just left from a conversation we had to go to one of the prisons and talk to some of the prisoners yeah to give them the chance because a lot of people who get the PTSD and have been in the forces do end up on the street and then in prison for whatever reason that they haven't been treated I think um, the the work that used to happen at Headley Court with in, in injured servicemen were, and, and some of my friends went, went through that process and it, it, was, it was horrific you know big white flash somewhere down range in Afghan or, uh, or, or Iraq um, ending up in Selig Hospital and then, and then starting the rehabilitation uh, through, through Headley Court and what I really liked was, was, was the approach of the, of the, of the staff there to, to try and help them to see not what can't you do anymore but what it is you can do in the future uh, and still treated them as soldiers uh, but one of the things is we hear about the success stories about and I think the uh, you know Prince, Prince Harry's and Victor Games and, and the Paralympics that you hear some really fantastic success stories but let's not forget about the people that haven't reacted that positively and, and really do have those difficulties you know and they, they end up really poorly they end up without support and as we've discussed you know some of them are ending up in prison as well uh, yeah. it's really tragic and that was another thing, you know, you've done four tours in the Special Forces, which is, for me, the greatest respect I can could give anybody who's done that. Um, and the soldiers that you lead in those environments, when I listen to uh, some of their stories and their podcasts, which yeah. are quite fun, um, they talk about the fact that it's a fine line for them having to be in an environment where there's quite a lot of violence mm. and they have to have control violence against an enemy. Yeah that one or two of them can go over on the dark side when they come out and yeah. get taken by the criminal gangs because yeah. again they have the excitement and that kind of stuff. Yeah. How, how does Special Forces make sure that their guys who are good guys don't go bad afterwards? It's a hard well I don't think you can ensure it, I think, I think it's going to happen. <laughs> you know, yeah. If it's happening now it's going to happen again in the future. Mm. I, I think uh, the support mechanisms, you know, the associations, um, and the feeling that if you know if you need help that you've got some you can go and ask um, so I think you know reunions are one way of doing it but I, th I think having an, a support mechanism in place because um, what I found about these these people that I work with they, they were ordinary people but doing extraordinary things mm. um, and so you know had human weaknesses um, we've all got human weaknesses so mm. um, when you're in that sort of environment, it's the recalibration um, of you know just leaving the army. You have to recalibrate to a, to a new world. So it's it's, neat, it's 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 giving them help with that decompression and recalibration, so that they don't go on the wrong path. Um, but it, it's you know it's really difficult. Yeah, it's really difficult. And I, I, I'm interested in, in you know you've been involved in training and developing people around the world. Yeah. Uh, and looking back at your time in Special Forces and, and who gets in and who doesn't, uh, I, I'm interested in your thoughts. Cause, so I was aspiring to, to go and do selection for 22 SES, 
but then had a terrible car crash with two of my mates, uh, actually being driven by Nick Metcalf, uh, who was Special Forces himself in, uh, in undercover uh, operations. And uh, it was a, an accident, a hopper bus pulled out, Nick was driving, telling us about the advanced driving course, yeah. and there was no way out apart from the hopper bus, so we smashed into that. So I was messed up just when I was gonna go for selection. Yeah. I don't think, I only did, and obviously peak under with you. I don't think I ever probably would have got in. I probably wasn't resilient or robust enough. But what was it that that marked out the successful officers, particularly I'm interested, mm. the leaders, from the unsuccessful ones on going for selection? What did you find? If you look back on those who got through and those who didn't. Um, I think, I mean, I never ran selection, but I, I was a product of selection. Um, so if I looked around, it was quite a, quite a high fallout rate. Um, but I suppose... A lot of it was, you know, would would people fit in? Would people fit in? Would they be able to work with with small, highly motivated teams who were very exposed um, uh, in very arduous conditions? And would they be able to do that thing I talked about about Sanders? Would they be able to think, decide, act, and inspire people um, whilst they're under pressure, probably scared to, um, to to make to make things happen? You know, and and so it, it's leadership. You know, was their leadership style and approach right for working with those highly motivated small teams? And I think that is the that is the crux of it. Mm. Um, and that's not necessarily the leadership model that's uh, that you learn at Santa. So it's mm. your ability to adapt your leadership to work in that environment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you've had some really amazing tours uh, while you've been doing this. Uh, talk to us about that, some of the fun ones and some of the hairy ones, without mentioning where or how. But what? Yeah, I can I, I can talk. Uh, Two really interesting uh, jobs I did were, were, were training close protection teams for um, the King of Swaziland and the uh, the President of Botswana, and, and that was that was fantastic. You go with a with a team um, and you create a greater capability, and um, you know you decide what's going to happen. You have to fight for resources. You have to uh, get the access to find out what what's needed, um, and then you have to create the package to deliver deliver the capability. But uh, they were fun times because the, it made leadership very easy because the, the soldiers were very good um, at knowing what was needed. And therefore, you, you didn't have to tell people what you just say, what do you think needs to be done? And they would say, and then you just say, well, who wants to do it? And they'd say, and they'd put the hands up, I'll do that. So it was a completely different style yeah, of leadership. Yeah, yeah. I think Because you had, you had almost like as troopers, some people have been sergeants and things in other regiments. Huge amounts of experience. I mean, it's interesting working in, a, in business now where, you know, the real talent, that they're absolutely fantastic software engineers or they can write algorithms and I don't really understand any of it, but you can still help them. You can still help them and, and, and bond them as a team. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I, just while you're talking about, that's fascinating, and while you're talking about Botswana, I, I went and did some work for the Department of Health out there twice, uh, found it very interesting. And um, uh, it was General Karma was the president. Was he there when you were? Yes, he was the head of the army then. Because yeah, the he's amazing. He's an inspiring leader. Yeah, very he? inspiring leader. Yeah. yeah. So you, you worked for his close protection? Yes, that's correct. Hey, that's so cool. Yeah. And yeah. the other funny story was um, the King of Swaziland, 20 years after I'd trained his close protection team, his son went to Sandhurst. So I had a reunion with him at Sandhurst. When you were the colonel then? Yeah, when I was the colonel. And uh, yeah. he remembered me and we had a, we had a really good sort of reunion. Um, that's special. That was quite funny. That's special. Yeah. And then what, what else? You said there was uh, one you went uh, doing some anti-narcotics. Are you going to be in some film someday? Uh, I, I don't know about that. It, it was just an interesting time where um, there was a, a real threat of, 
uh, narcotics flooding flooding the, uh, the the British streets and uh, you know there, there was a, there was a policy to try and find out you know how, how that could how could, that could be uh, curtailed to an extent and I don't know to what extent it has been but uh, it was it was certainly an interesting time and there's an interesting program on uh, on Netflix called Narcos which, I love it I love which it. is yeah. uh, so I, is that I pretty that, close to the truth um, well I was only there for a short time and it covers a, a long period but 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 certainly Colombia was a fantastic country and the people were wonderful um, yeah. and and the and the threat was real so it's a really excited place, um, but again the in, in terms of leadership it, it it was the same sort of principles it, mm. it was uh, you know you were remote um, there was there was high risk um, but you had a job to do and uh, you know it was just enabling the team to be able to do it that was the mm. most important thing and I think um, back to your earlier question the. You know, the difference between heroic and non-heroic leadership. You yeah, know, talk about that. I think I think the time for heroic leadership is is is, is uh, more from a bygone age now. It, it's um, directing and measuring people is more from the industrial age, and I think now it's uh, more non-heroic leadership. So being more empathetic, being more of a transformational than a transactional leader. So you're um, you're supporting, you're enabling, um, and you're encouraging people um, who've got the talent. Um, to to make things happen, to make the change. And I think in change management as well, um, change has to happen from the bottom. In fact, I actually turn the pyramids upside down. I say mm. that you know, if you look at a traditional hierarchy in the military, you know, the CO is sat at the top and there's all the, all the soldiers causing trouble and getting drunk. But actually they're the ones facing the enemy and your job is to, um, is to enable them to do that and mm. provide them resources to do that and to make decisions when things go wrong. And it's the same in business. Um, you know, you're, the people that are creating the solutions to the customer's problems are the people with those real skills and turn the, turn the pyramid upside down yeah. again. And the, the management there is to enable those people to get them to the customer, to find out what the problem is and then give them resources to solve that. And that leadership style is certainly what's needed in the, uh, I think in the, in, in the information age now. Because the key thing is to be successful there, other resources that, that it's called them human resources but the people yeah and the skill sets now to succeed in that environment are, are very hard to come by and you don't retain them by paying a lot of money yeah you retain them by giving people uh, a job that they want to do a real challenge and then providing them the support um, and the enablement to do that and so therefore the leadership style has to change from um, giving orders directives um, and then measuring that performance to be more empathetic, as we've talked about, uh, listening more, and then being more collaborative and enabling people to, mm -hmm. to do their jobs. And I think that's a really important, uh, yeah. important lesson I've learned from moving from the military to industry. As you, you know, the qualities of a leader stay the same, but the, um, you know, the function of a leader and the leadership style specifically needs to change. Yeah, and it's interesting, uh, the wisdom and experience that you've accumulated from working with some amazing people. Um, I deliberately have chosen you as episode 50, which is my 50th, okay. uh, as a sort of milestone, because I think, uh, I think people will really enjoy uh, listening to the stories and the experience. Let's just jump back to uh, when you and I met each other for the first time, when we were um, at Aldershot doing airborne training. You were with Nine Squad and I was with the, the Signals, and we were romping around trying to do all these different courses. and. The psychology of, of P Company and you know when they took us to the gate and said, right, let's go out and do it again, and we thought we'd finished. Yeah. What, what, what sort of stuck, stuck in your mind about how, 
how cleverly they did it and, and, and how it sort of sorted through and got the right people for airborne training. That's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I, I did quite a few courses in the army and, and I think um, P Company was a, was a short blast, to be quite honest. And the, the pre-training for it that I did with a, with a, with a unit it was probably hard, harder than because yeah, I did itself. that with you, didn't I? We yeah. did it, it was a combined one, isn't it? Yeah. Was it was it was the pre-training two weeks, was it? Yeah, but it, 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 that was tougher than the actual course. Yeah. So, um, I I think the selection for the airborne forces was exactly what was needed. You yeah. Know, it was hard. It was fast. It was pretty ruthless. You had to make the standard, uh, and the standards were made clear, and you would pass or fail. And at the end of the course. The way they did it was stand up, and they told you whether you passed or failed, and you sat down. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. <laughs> brutal, brutal, but honest. Yeah. At least you knew who who was in and who was out. Yeah. yeah. Other courses I did, it it was very much uh, less pressure. It was you had to motivate yourself. You were shown how to do something or told how to do something. You could get it wrong, um, and then be shown how to get it right. But once you got it right, you then had to get it right all the time. And one of the key things I've learned, and I've seen this in business, is you know you've got to get the basics right. And I've done some lessons learned of projects that haven't particularly worked. And when you look at it, before you go into the detail, you know, you can see, and it's certainly a lot of it applies to the leadership, is you didn't get the basics right. And that's really important. Yeah. And, and this is a really good point you make, David, that um, a number of business leaders say, look, you know, fine military leaders, men and women, do very well in business, mm. but they have to make this transition. And there isn't normally a direct... Uh, carry over from some heroic battles they fought in Afghanistan yeah. and a platoon base and what they have to do you know working in Lloyd's Bank or, yeah. or RBS but there are still some endear- enduring leadership tenants that do carry across so very well which is why these people do very well in business what, what, what would you say does carry across well and what what doesn't really I think the qualities transfer very easily um, and as uh, Field Marshal Slim said, um, you know, it's it's intelligence, it's willpower, it's moral courage, and it's initiative. All those all those things transfer very easily. Um, the ability to realise when you've done something wrong and to put it right immediately. Um, I think the functions which I learnt at Sandhurst 35 years ago, uh, planning, briefing, controlling, supporting, informing, evaluating. I think at at a, at a more strategic level in business. There's still some application for that, but there's a lot more to do with uh, collaboration and strategic thinking. But I think in business down at the lower levels, the fact that you come into work as a leader and you 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 can you can still apply those those parts of the leadership model um, for functional leadership to make sure that your team know what's going on um, mm. and that you're watching and you can you can make the adjustments. But there are other aspects which are more to do with empathy and emotional intelligence, which I think the Army's learning, but I, th- I think they're, they're, they're valid in, in, in both environments. Um, emotional intelligence, I gave the example of, of where I got it wrong, but it's, um, it's understanding how you make, make people feel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's making them feel that they've got a voice, um, because the minute they don't feel you've got a voice, they are just turning up and logging in and yeah. not adding value. And if you're looking for staying relevant as a business, the change, can be enabled from the top, but the actual change has got to come through the people that are actually solving the problems. That's a really good point. I think it's Jack Welsh who said, when the speed of change on the outside is faster than the speed of change on the inside of your organization, the end is near. The end is near. 
and I think that's so so relevant. Um, I think the rate of change now is increasing as well in, in, in the digital world, and and so one of the one of the um, challenges that people have is is how do we change these business processes that have that have served us well for the to this point and all our legacy products and services. How are we now going to change that so that it, we're more uh, adaptive, we're we're quicker, um, and we we keep up with the changing environment, which yeah. is changing exponentially. Well, there's there's one leader who's turned the the the, uh, the lens around and said quite profoundly, the speed of change will never be this slow ever again. Yeah, I think he's and right. And I thought I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it. So you know, you're now in business and have been in business for seven and a half years. Um, what are the sort of top things that you're learning about leadership? And we've talked about emotional and social intelligence. I do think you have to be a tremendously good listener mm. and then summarizing, but then what I call the Dan's ad, you've got to make a decision, action, next step, yeah. who's accountable and delivery deadline. And I find too many business meetings are waffly and like, what is, what is the decision goes? Who's doing what, when? Yeah. And, and, they, and they have an update. Yeah. Yeah, but, but where's the decision? Yeah. What, what do you find? How, how have you improved business meetings? I, I, th I think, um one of the key functions of a leader is not just to make a good decision, but to make a good decision at the right time. Yeah. Because a decision made it, a good decision, which you think is a good decision, made at the wrong time, to me isn't a good decision. And I recognise uh, some of the things you said about talking but not deciding. I think you've got to, it's got to be clear whose decision it is, um, and then that decision maker needs to step up and make the decision. Um, yeah. So I recognise it. It is something. Uh, I think decision making is one thing. I think setting priorities is really important as well because anywhere there's a finite amount of resource. Mm. So therefore, if people know what your um, priorities are, you actually enable them to go away and get on with it. If yeah. they're still saying, well, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this, that, or, or, or working, certainly in a matrix organization, you know, the priorities for the business have to be really clear. So people can see in the military talk about commanders one up and two up and tent. Mm. I think it's the same in business. Um, people talk a lot now about um, what is the purpose? And to me, that is, you know, you need to know what you're working towards. So mm. decision-making at the right time and making sure that everyone understands the purpose, but more importantly, making sure that everyone feels that they have a voice and they can contribute. As I say, otherwise, they just turn up, log in, and do a day's work without really feeling committed towards it. Which brings me on to uh, the next topic. Uh, and we're, we're almost at the end of time, but... I'm really interested, you know, you've had a lifetime experience of small teams, big teams, leading teams, influencing others. Um, but also you've seen some toxic teams and you've seen some toxic leaders, both in the military and in business. Yeah. What have you seen that's really quite toxic that people should be aware of and watch out for that when things go wrong or when leaders go bad? Well, I think the Santos motto is serve to lead. It's selflessness. I think mm. if, you've got a, if you've got a leader who you think is a as, as a bullying style or as doing things for their own ends um, and isn't really about the, the team yeah. um, I, I think that's very apparent and people will know people that, that they've worked for when I do mentoring a lot of the questions I asked initially is you know explain to me some good leaders and why and some not so good leaders and why and it's always the same sort of thing that comes out and one of the things is they don't listen um, they think they're always right 
um, and I'm not convinced about their, how genuine they are. Mm. I feel mm. they've got their own personal agenda for their own self-improvement or success, whatever it is. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's spot on. So let's, let's have a couple of your final top tips of leadership. I mean, goodness, you've accumulated many over the years, both um, serving in different parts of the Royal Engineers and, and then Special Forces and then instructing at Sandhurst um, and now in, in Tullus. So what, what would be a couple of your top tips to leave people with? I think the first one would be uh, don't just be a leader, be a role model uh, and a mentor. Uh, be a role model because you're always being watched by, by your team um, and they are learning from you. So maintain that standard and yeah. be a good role model. Mentoring is really important and to be quite honest, I, I was never really mentored um, in, in the military. Yeah, I, I, have I, been, I have been mentored uh, since I've, I've joined business. Um, but I think mentoring is really powerful. Mm. Um, it enables people. And, and, and just staying with mentoring, someone, I don't know what your definition is, but someone said to me, the difference between coaching and mentoring. I said, in coaching, the coach has some great questions for your answers. In mentoring, the mentor has some great answers to your questions. Now, that's not always it is, because yeah. you get a mentor who uses a coaching style, but yeah. it's a very simplistic, easy way. But what's, what, what would your definition of what a mentor is? Well, the difference to me is coaching is to solve a specific problem. Um, and you know that could be in sport, that could be in working out how to integrate software with hardware, with firmware. Um, Whereas mentoring's a little bit more about the self-development, and it's a mentor's there to create the framework for that for that self-development. Mm. So, and I think you know a lot of it is is creating the conditions for people to think for themselves and to come up with the solutions themselves. So, in either coaching or mentoring, I think um, you know asking the right questions is equally important. Yeah, that's very true. So, yeah, my top tips: um, mentoring is really important. I think the key about it is when you look back at all the successes you've had, mentoring gives you a bit of a legacy in terms of how uh, you know, you, you've helped other people. Yes. And my last tip is always say thank you and be genuine when you say thank you yeah. because the first thing is it, it makes people feel good, but I think more importantly, it really empowers people. So yeah. I think saying thank you genuinely is, is really important. Dave, it's really great having you on the series. And oh, um, I do appreciate the way you've shown up very authentically. Uh, also, you had the courage to, to talk about things like PTSD, which is not often talked about, and so you're role modelling that. And, and I'm sure that people are very lucky to work for you in Tullis. And, uh, and I wish you every success, so thanks for coming. Thanks very much, Jonathan. So, now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.